Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's case is a fascinating one, again, about an outwardly respectable man with very dark urges, which he was unable to resist. I'm delighted that the research for this case was carried out by ex-police officer and author Chris Clark. Catch Chris, he's very active on the UK True Crime Facebook group, or you can find him if you search for The Armchair Detective. I also strongly suggest you head to Amazon to buy his latest book about evil killer Robert Black, The Face of Evil. I'll add a link to the show notes and at uktruecrime.com. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my new supporters on Patreon this week. That's Darren Littlejohns, Mike English, Karen Shanks, Andy Hepburn, Matthew Straker and longtime supporter Nikki Preston, who has increased her support. Thank you all so much. And with 99 supporters as I speak, who is going to be number 100? Okay, let's get some context around the music we were listening to at the time of this story. At number one in the UK was 911 with A Little Bit More. At number three were Steps with Tragedy. In the US, top spot was Brandy with Have You Ever? But this was soon to be replaced with One More Time by Britney Spears. In the news... This was the month when the impeachment of Bill Clinton began in the US Senate. The Sopranos and Family Guy made their first appearances on our screens. And England national football team manager Glenn Hoddle gave that interview to the Times newspaper in which he suggested that people born with disabilities are paying for sins in a previous life. Unsurprisingly, he was soon out of a job. It was the stuff of every parent's worst nightmares. Tears, fear, no sleep, uncertainty and trying desperately to push to the back of your mind the horror of what might just have happened to your child. The day had dawned with fading hopes and escalating fears. The two ten-year-olds, Charlene Lunnan and Lisa Hoodless, had been missing for three days. The hope that they'd gone off to London, which bolstered everyone's spirits for the first 24 hours, was now beginning to wear thin. In the Lunnan home, the family was waiting for any snippet of news, anything that might offer them some hope, but there was nothing. Charlene's father, Keith Lunnan, admitted that he was left with only a tiny bit of hope. His wife, Philomena, feared that her stepdaughter was dead. Their anguish was underlined by a note they left on a pillow in Charlene's bedroom, decorated with posters of the Spice Girls and Leonardo DiCaprio. The note, written by her sister, said, We love you, Charlene, always. At the girls' school, Christchurch, in the Hastings suburb of St Leonard's, staff had attached a large yellow ribbon to the school gate with a note that read, This ribbon is a symbol of our prayers for the safe return of Charlene and Lisa. At Hastings Police Station, Detective Superintendent Jeremy Payne of Sussex Police, who was leading the search, was aware that it was not getting anywhere. An experienced officer who has investigated some of the South Coast's most serious crimes, he now ordered his officers to begin checking names on the paedophile register. He said at the time, I'm very worried, I'm less confident and less hopeful that we're going to find these children alive and well, which makes us all very sad. However, none of us will give up hope there is still the possibility that they are alive and well out there somewhere. Neither the police nor anyone in the two girls' families knew it, 
but the two girls were in fact alive, in a small drab flat in nearby Eastbourne, in a shopping centre on a housing estate 15 miles along the coast. Charlene and Lisa were waking up. Lisa was in tears. The children knew that their parents were looking for them. They'd seen their distress on TV. They heard the appeals to come home, but they couldn't. They also knew the scale of the search. It was Sussex Police's biggest missing person search in history. More than 300 police officers, scores of volunteers and 50 Gurkhas from the Princess of Wales' own regiment had been sweeping the Hastings area and searching the headlands and parklands close to the girls' home. At the same time, officers from the Met Police followed up on a number of reported sightings of the girls in Bermondsey and Plumstead in South London. They also checked out suspicions that the girls may have set out for the West London crematorium where Charlene's mother was cremated just two years ago. Detective Sergeant Douglas Bick and Detective Constable Martin Toft studied their files and they considered two men in the Eastbourne area capable of this abduction. They went to see one first because he was due to be arrested anyway. They almost gave up when nobody answered the door but they peeked through the letterbox and they saw a figure standing in the hall. He'd been expecting the call and made only a half-hearted attempt to deflect the two detectives. He said he needed time to dress but when the officers insisted He opened the door of his scruffy flat and whispered, there and there. Within minutes they found the girl sitting on a bed. The admission ended the girl's 75-hour ordeal and in the euphoria which followed, the families and police hoped that the suspect who was cooperative and softly spoken had not harmed the girls at all. The girls were separated and taken to Battle and Helsham police stations to be reunited with their parents. During the afternoon they were interviewed for an hour in the child protection suites. They suffered a catalogue of assaults, said DC Turner Burney, who was present at one of the sessions. The girls were fine to begin with, and then they became very distressed. They remembered everything that had happened in great detail. The public were desperate to know about just what sort of man could have carried out such a terrible crime, and what they heard was shocking to the extreme. Alan Charles Hopkinson, a former member of Mensa with an IQ of 159, was born in June 1953 in Eastbourne on the south coast of England, the only child of middle-class parents. When he was four, his family moved to southern Africa, living in Bulawayo and then Salisbury, now renamed Harare in Zimbabwe. As a boy, Hopkinson enjoyed schoolwork and it came easily to him as he was academically very bright. At Churchill High School for Boys in Zimbabwe, he picked up six O-levels and three A-levels before taking a series of clerical jobs. By the time he was 21, he had completed two spells of national service with the Air Force, but this was an experience he didn't enjoy at all. He returned to England at 23 and lived with relatives in Sidcup, South East London, working as a manual labourer and in further clerical jobs. Although bright, he hadn't yet quite found what he was looking for, but this all changed in 1981 when he took a computer programming course. Instantly, he loved the work, and this was a turning point for Hopkinson. But this career change meant that Hopkinson, who was already someone who struggled with relationships and preferred his own company, became even more isolated. 
When his parents returned to England in 1987, he moved in with them. It must have been a really lonely life, as he rarely went out, he had no friends, and he struggled to commit at work, moving from job to job. For two years, though, he did hold a junior post with the Bank of England. By the time his parents came home, Hopkinson had begun a relationship with his cousin, Jean Taylor. They lived together with his parents in Maidstone, Kent. It's unclear whether his parents approved, but I imagine this could have been a pretty awkward arrangement. But Hopkinson's slightly odd behaviour had not gone unnoticed locally, and he had developed a reputation as a bit of an unsavoury character. We used to call him the pervert, said a former neighbour. You'd be out in the garden pegging out the washing, and there would be a whistle. By instinct you'd look up, and there he would be, standing in the upstairs window, he'd have nothing on. But this unpleasant yet relatively harmless behaviour soon deteriorated, and his offences got much, much worse. In July 1990, he began acting out the secret fantasies he'd been outlining in a diary he kept, which he called The Evil Rapist. First, he tried to abduct an 18-year-old French hitchhiker and drag her into his car, but luckily for her, the girl escaped. But now he'd started on the path to turn his fantasies into reality, he wasn't about to be stopped. Within weeks, Hopkinson's next focus was the school near his house in Maidstone, Kent. And it was here that he kidnapped and assaulted an 11-year-old girl. He waited outside the school, grabbed her from behind and bundled her into the boot of his car. He tied her up and drove her to nearby woods where he sexually assaulted her. He then took her back to his parents' home and forced her into a tiny upstairs cupboard. Fortunately, the police found him within hours after chatting to parents at the school. One had seen a man acting suspiciously and had jotted down the registration number of his car. We found the girl in the cupboard. She was terrified. She was so lucky we found her quickly, said DCI David Stevens, who led the investigation. Inside Hopkinson's flat, DCI Stevens found a six-page story typed on a computer which described how a man abducted a girl and attacked her. Disturbingly, the story didn't have an ending. They also found a hoard of pornography, videos and photographs. Hopkinson instantly admitted the crime and he confessed to detectives that he'd wanted to abduct and assault children for as long as he could remember. When his parents were interviewed, they noted that in early 1990, he'd become even more subdued and had lost a lot of weight. Police experts told his parents that this was the classic signs of a paedophile who was about to turn predator. Hopkinson, who told police during the interviews that as well as his liking for young girls, he enjoyed dressing up in women's clothes, was taken to court and sentenced just seven years for kidnap. Before sentencing, he also confessed to kidnapping the French student at knife point. Seven years for that offence is shocking, isn't it? And the local community were rightly outraged. Anne Widdicombe, the MP for the constituency before her latest career as a reality star, complained, if we cannot have severe sentences for child abusers, we will not deal with the problem. He shared a cell with one of Britain's most notorious paedophiles. I'm not even going to name them. The pair swapped sordid fantasies and plotted what they would do when freed. In jail, Hopkinson put these vile thoughts on paper, including a 25-chapter book called Foiling the Beast. 
supposedly to help his recovery, it's examined in the 25 chapters why men like him dreamt of abusing little girls. He had Eastbourne's weekly paper delivered and he cut out pictures of boys and girls and drew a macabre map of schools in the Eastbourne area annotated with the names of children that he'd cut out from the local paper and then he searched the phone book for their addresses. Prison officers later found pictures of half-dressed children in his cell. The scheming prisoner Hopkinson signed up for every treatment programme and claimed he had turned to God to repent. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? The churches in UK prisons must be filled to capacity every week based on what we hear on this podcast. Hopkinson served just four years of seven and was released on licence, with prison sources saying he had been a model prisoner. Because he was not charged with sex offences, he was under supervision for only six months. Upon his release, he moved into a shabby flat in Eastbourne above a shopping centre, around four miles north of the centre of Eastbourne. It wasn't long until his urges encouraged dangerous grooming behaviour. He often lingered in the shopping arcade where he bought sweets and cigarettes for children, occasionally inviting groups to his flat to watch videos. At first he did not arouse suspicion, as locals were disarmed by his politeness and his claim that he had a family of his own, a wife and children. But his behaviour began to concern parents, as he became obsessed with a 10 and 11 year old sister who'd been visiting him regularly. He used to have lots of children coming to visit all the time, said his next-door neighbour. It was always the same bunch. They were from the local school. One used to wear her uniform. They would come at all hours. They seemed to think of him as a father figure. He would buy them sweets. Then they would come back and make cookies. One night, three girls came round and said, could I hand a letter to Alan? There was an envelope with two hearts in the corners and Alan in the middle. It made me feel quite sick. The mother of the two girls who visited him the most discovered that Hopkinson did not have a wife and children, but lived alone, and when her daughter became introverted, she called the police. What she didn't know is that Hopkinson had been abusing a number of the girls for a year or more, and in his twisted mind, believed he'd fallen in love with the older girl he's obsessed with, the 11-year-old, asking her to marry him on at least 40 occasions. Hopkinson kept a diary of one of the girls' visits, One entry read, N. Fun. He later told police the N stood for naked. On January the 9th, officers from Eastbourne's child protection team met Hopkinson to warn him about the complaint. They began an investigation immediately and spoke to scores of children. But this visit triggered Hopkinson into more aggressive behaviour. Deprived of his two favourite children and sure he was about to be arrested, he plotted another abduction. Police were so concerned that they tried to secure a court order against him, keeping away from children, but they ran out of time. Racing against the clock, Hopkinson trawled the streets, identifying schools on a map and driving around the neighbourhoods. He finally took his chance at 8.30am on a bitterly cold winter's day, Tuesday, January 19th, 1999, as he drove his parents' Vauxhall Corsa near a primary school. He saw two girls come out of a garage where they bought sweets. He followed them, and when the coast was clear, got out to ask the time. Within moments, he had bundled them into the boot of the car. Hopkinson took the girls to his parents' house, knowing they were abroad. He carried them into the house inside a black sports bag and kept them there for the night. 
The following day he considered releasing them, but decided to take them to his flat instead, because the girls knew his name. Hopkinson kept them in his living room. He'd be stern with them one minute, then offer them food and piggyback rides the next. Amazingly, nobody saw him as he transported the girls or heard their screams. At the house, he used his mother's tights to tie their hands and showed them the 18-foot drop from his window, telling them they would break their legs if they tried to jump. Speaking later to the Express newspaper, the two young women talked about their terrifying experiences at the hands of Hopkinson, saying, He opened his boot and we thought he was getting something out. But he came over to us, put his arms around us and said, I'm so glad I didn't hit you. Then his voice changed and took on a more sinister tone. He suddenly said, Do exactly what I tell you. Get into the car. Grabbing Lisa first, Hopkinson pulled her into the boot of the Vauxhall Corsa. Charlene stood, stunned, watching as her friend struggled and screamed. Lisa was going red, she was screaming so much, Charlene said. I could have got away, but I didn't want to leave her alone. And the next thing I knew, he turned, picked me up and threw me in the boot too. It was pitch black and Lisa was sobbing. I remember stroking her hair and trying to reassure her, even though I thought this man was going to kill both of us. The girls were driven for 30 minutes from their homes towards Eastbourne. On the way, Hopkinson stopped the car, pulled Charlene into the back seat and assaulted her before returning her to the boot. Then they arrived at Hopkinson's flat in Langley, just outside Eastbourne. Lisa said, He opened the boot and zipped me into a big sports bag to carry me to the front door of his flat, leaving Charlene in the boot. He took me into the back room, stripped me, tied my wrist behind my neck with a pair of tights and asked me my name and details, which he wrote down on a notepad. Then he attacked me. Back then, I didn't know what he was doing. Even when Charlene said the word rape to me afterwards, I didn't understand. Over the following four days, the girls lost count of the number of times they were assaulted. There was no chance of escape. Hopkinson had removed all the door handles on the inside of the rooms where they were held. He also told the girls if they fled, his next door neighbour would kill them. We both remember sitting on the sofa on the first night, eating the packed lunches we had with us for school that day and just cuddling each other in fear and despair, said Lisa. Then he'd take one of us off to his bedroom, where he would assault us. As their ordeal continued, Lisa and Charlene were forced to watch the news by Hopkinson, so they saw the scale of the response to the abduction. Even the Spice Girls made an appeal for their safe return. The first time I saw myself on the news, I felt a surge of hope, said Lisa. I thought that at least people were looking for us but as the hours passed, it was obvious that everyone was given up hope and they weren't looking in the right places. I could tell that my parents and Charlene's dad thought we were dead. On their third day in captivity, Hopkinson told Lisa and Charlene he was going to take them home. In fact, he drove them to the notorious suicide spot Beachy Head nearby, where he held them over the clifftop. He later told police he'd been planning on throwing them to their deaths. I remember him hanging me off the cliff and thinking, this is it now, said Charlene. I could see the waves and the rocks far below me and I was sure I was about to die. I had no feelings and no emotion at this point. I was numb with shock and fear. He then said that he wanted to keep us for one more day 
and put us back in the boot. We were both totally resigned to our fate and didn't even put up a fight when he took us to his room to abuse us again. Once the girls had been rescued, a search of his flat revealed a number of items which suggested he had planned the children's ordeal. These included detailed maps of the area where Hopkinson lived, a sex diary, a booklet entitled The Evil Rapist, a computer disc containing graphic descriptions of the rape of young children, newspaper cuttings about paedophile detectives, and the online book that Hopkinson had been writing about his fantasies, Foiling the Beast. There was also a list of schools in the East Sussex area on his computer, and pages showing child models which had been torn from mail-order catalogues. Detective Superintendent Jeremy Payne, who led the investigation, said the case had been the worst he had come across. He said that Hopkinson was a horrendously dangerous man who should never, ever be released back into society. When he was questioned by two male detectives, Hopkinson appeared contrite and he admitted taking the girls, but he insisted he had not assaulted them. The denials continued over the weekend until DC Burney, a woman, was assigned to the case. He preferred talking to women, she said. I persuaded him to write down in detail what had happened, and later she interviewed Hopkinson for four days. She said, He is dangerous because he is charming, polite and highly intelligent. He took me through all his fantasies and showed no emotion at all. He told me he was sorry for what happened, but I didn't believe him. He seemed to think the children had encouraged him. He admitted he'd been obsessed by children all his life and I'm sure he would offend again. Men like Hopkinson don't change. He doesn't want to change. The strangest thing about him was the way he treated me. At the end of it all, he must have known that I was repulsed, but he stood up, shook my hand and said, it's been a pleasure knowing you. Detectives believe that as soon as he was freed from his previous sentence in June 1995, he resumed preying on children. They believe he may have abused up to 40 children before he was caught. As I said before, Hopkinson was never listed on the paedophile register, nor was he officially monitored after his release. Although police kept an eye on him, they had other priorities. Parents were also convinced by him, as he doesn't fit the cliched image of a dangerous child abuser. They were conned by his polite manner and obvious intelligence. At his trial, Charles Miskin, defending, said that Hopkinson had a nervous breakdown in the 1980s which triggered a change of personality. His marriage broke down, he lost his job at the Bank of England and in 1990 matters went horribly wrong. 45-year-old Hopkinson pleaded guilty to 13 charges of kidnapping, imprisoning and assaulting the two 10-year-olds. He also admitted 11 charges of indecent assault, 7 against a 12-year-old girl and 4 against her 11-year-old sister. Bespectacled Hopkinson, smartly dressed with silver-grey hair and a grey, neatly clipped moustache, nodded courteously to the judge as he was sent down. Judge Brown told him he had no thought for the physical and mental damage inflicted on his victims. The judge declared... The public now have the right to demand that this court does everything in its power to ensure that you will never be free again to present a risk to young children and I propose to heed that demand. The nature of the offences led me to believe that if you are ever at liberty again you'd be likely to commit similar offences. The father of one of the 10-year-olds said 
They are both lucky to be alive. I think he would have got rid of them if the police had not burst through that door. The dad revealed that his daughter was still suffering horrific nightmares, he said. She wakes up in the middle of the night screaming and has been terrified that if he's not locked up, he will come back and get her for telling on him. Lots of times she has asked me to make sure he is locked away. So what happened to these two young girls abducted by Hopkinson? In August 2007, then both aged 18, Charlene and Lisa went public to the Express newspaper. Not only have they spent many years haunted by their experiences, but in a troubling twist to the story, the girls grew apart, each unable to bear the memories evoked by the other's presence. And Charlene admitted she began to bully her former best friend. Perhaps in some way I blame Lisa for what I went through, because at one point I could have run away from Hopkinson, but I didn't out of loyalty to her, she said. I made her life hell, which is something I'm ashamed of. Also, I suffered far more at the hands of Hopkinson, and that weighed heavily on me after we were released. In the months that followed, I thought for some reason that Lisa was okay, even that she was happy. And because I was desperately confused and upset, part of me wanted to take it out on her. I used to call her names at school and encourage other girls to do the same. It was the only way I could cope with being around her. Lisa, however, was far from happy. She describes the year she was kidnapped as the worst of her life, not only because of the horror she endured at the hands of Hopkinson, but because within weeks of returning home, her mother left her father for another man and didn't take her with her. I felt I'd lost everything, said Lisa. I blamed myself for what happened with Hopkinson and thought that it was my fault that mum had left too. I was in tears the whole time. As a result, I was very quiet and introverted at school. And to have my best friend turn on me was the most awful thing in the world. I used to look at her and feel nothing but contempt. And then things went from bad to worse when mum walked out a few weeks later. I was too young to understand that my parents' marriage hadn't been working, and I just thought that mum wanted to get away from me. Charlene, meanwhile, on the outside at least, appeared to have the opposite reaction to what had happened. At school she was loud, confident and very popular with her peers. After mum had died, I'd learnt to put a brave face on things that hurt me, said Charlene. I did the same after this. I wanted to show everyone what had happened wasn't a problem to me, but much of it was a front and inside I was bereft. I had a year and a half of counselling, which left me more confused than ever about what had happened. And at that young age, I just couldn't find the right words to express how I felt. Charlene was only prompted to hold out an olive branch to Lisa in October 2005, following the death of a friend in a car crash. I realised that Lisa was the only person to truly understand what I'd been through, she said. I know I'd been an awful person and had been cruel towards her, and I wanted to make amends. My hands were trembling as I picked up the telephone. As soon as she answered, I blurted out, I'm sorry. For Lisa and I, it's a bit like looking back at two characters in a horror film said Charlene. It's hard to believe that those two girls who were so horrifically abused by Hopkinson are actually the two of us. We can talk about it fairly openly without bursting into tears now or getting upset. We don't have nightmares anymore either. Even terrible wounds can heal. Instead of focusing on how unlucky we were, we think about how lucky we are to have got out alive and have a chance to lead normal lives. And they have nothing but contempt for the man who nearly destroyed their lives. 
At the time, he seemed so big and strong, remembers Charlene. But I'm sure if we saw him now, he would seem small and pathetic, and we'd be the strong ones. We want him to know that we've got lives, families and prospects, and that we're happy. That for all those hideous things he did to us, he didn't destroy us. So what do you make of what you've heard today? Not much to say about Hopkinson, is there? As he sits in his cell, as you listen to this podcast... I don't even think the religion will see him released this time and he will die in prison. For me, I think that despite the horrific experiences of Lisa and Charlene and the other victims too, don't forget, the message going forward has to be a positive one. However terrible the ordeal, it's possible to come through it and be able to build a happy life with a real hope for the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. And a big thank you again to Chris Clark for bringing this story to my attention. Please head to the Facebook group to discuss this case and all aspects of UK true crime. You'll be made very welcome. And if you would like to support the podcast, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime where you can enjoy the 12 full length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Who knows, you might be lucky 100. That is all from me for now, so until we speak again next week, it's cheerio.